Welcome to episode number 24 of the Path to Follow podcast. Today we have Mr. Matt Baum, class of 93 from Gilman on the set. Matt, it's good to see you. It's great to have you in. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm flattered to be here. Yeah, it's awesome. How uh, How is everything going for you this year? It's been total 180 in terms of teaching and for everybody, just brand new skills and ways of going about the classroom. How have you been doing with everything? Everything's been, I'd say, fine this year. It's certainly not um, as fun as a normal year. I think all of us as teachers have thought about what we miss about sort of normal school. And I think I'm not alone in saying the thing I miss most is that the interaction with students. It's so different with half the kids or probably more than half the kids on Zoom at a time not hanging out with my advisees, not hanging out with my students in, in the same way. Um, you know, the Zoom stuff can get pretty tiring, as I'm, I'm sure you know, um, but it's been fine. And I, I think I've, as far as my classes are concerned, just tried to keep it simple in my own head of saying, are they learning? Are they thinking? Um, and if, if they are, then, you know, sort of, sort of doing my job. Um, yeah. I hope I'm not setting the expectations too low, but... Um, that's sort of how I'm thinking about it. So in my, in my first year at Gilman, I tried to observe as many different teachers as I could to gather some skill sets and see what other teachers were doing since I didn't yeah. really know what it looked like and felt to be in front of the classroom. And I remember sitting in on a couple of your U.S. since 1960. Yep. At, at that time, since 45. I changed. It was I changed, 45. Yeah, so I did. I changed the, I changed the class. But yep. Just, yep. U, U.S. history since 1945. Yep. And you had a super strong class that yeah. first year. I yeah. think Noah, Seth. Yes. yes. And yeah. just everyone in that class was very yeah. strong. Yes. Um, but I remember the way it was structured, it was almost you would use maybe like a Netflix clip or right. something on, you know, a video. Yeah. And then it was almost like a debate style type of class. Yeah. Are you finding that you can still have that same atmosphere over Zoom with the discussion? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's, it's harder, right? And um, I haven't done quite as much of that. I mean, first of all, it's actually made me think a lot about the media that I show. It's just harder to do that over Zoom. Had kids sort of consume more of that on their own. I think my seniors are, are, are super strong this year. I mean, I always get such a nice crop of seniors. Um, so they're, I'd say, more equipped to do that sort of discussion um, and some of the sort of debate stuff. Um, it's a little bit harder with the younger kids, I find, um, who just aren't as eager or willing to sort of jump in and press on mute. You know, my, my seniors, I think, are more willing to do that. So I've, I've tried to, but it's, it's, I think, not quite like it, like it would be in a normal year. What, um, what are some different ways you're finding work to go about teaching in this situation or what, what what has been working really well for you some i, I trying to um vary it uh and not have and i you know i'll step back for a second i think one thing when people talk about what works in in our current situation are things that we probably always did do or maybe should have done and now it's just sort of exaggerated so you know, we were teaching 80 minute classes last year. You should vary instruction anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I think mm -hmm. it's even more important to do that on Zoom, though. Right. Where I'm not just talking for 60 of the 70 minutes, you know, doing breakout rooms, doing group work, having some asynchronous, some Loom videos that I record and, and have them watch some discussion. board. So, you know, I think just trying to vary it as, as much as possible. And again, another thing that's probably good practice anyway, but I've really thought more about this year is having students produce something at the end of class. I guess teachers sometimes call those exit tickets. Mm -hmm. 
it's so easy to be passive on Zoom. Um, and so I think especially for the half the kids that aren't in the classroom with me to make sure that by the end of class, they've taken a quiz or posted a discussion board or done a Flipgrid video where I know they've gotten something out of class. And again, mm -hmm. that's probably something I should do most classes, even if even if it's sort of normal settings anyway. Yeah, I think I think that's a great strategy. And when I was in my first year of teaching, observing Brian, one of the things he did was make sure everyone was taking notes and it was very like that was so emphasized in his classes. Everyone has their notebook out writing. It doesn't matter, you know, how much you're writing, but at least it shows me as a teacher that you are there and you're putting stuff down and you can't do that over Zoom. So I think, yeah, that, that that's I mean, I should do that a little bit more in my classes, the exit yeah. ticket or yeah. just reflecting on what we just talked about for 60 minutes right. or 80 minutes or however long the class yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I miss, I, I was a big note guy. I would actually collect notes, um, you know, usually when students would take a test with my 10th graders. Um, and I, at the end of every unit, I collect a note. So yeah, they had to have paper notes out. I, obviously, I can't do that um, in the current format. So I, I miss that. Um, it was a long time. English teacher, Dan Christian, did you ever cross paths with, with Mr. Christian? He was here my first year, yeah, but yeah, I didn't yeah, get right. to so, know okay. him yeah, that well. Of course, yeah, yeah. But he was he was just teaching, I think, probably just one class at that, trying to put the years. Anyway, he used to um, say to class, you know what this looks like? This looks like school, you know? And um, you know, have kids take off their coats and take put out their notebooks. So I used to say, you know, that was just so much of what I do. I'm just stealing from other teachers, especially him. Um, but yeah, I say that's look that this is what school looks like. Like you have your notebook out, you know, mm -hmm. pen and paper. Um, and so, yeah, I, I miss that. I miss that part of it this year. Yeah. And I've never been one to emphasize, like you need to write everything yeah. out of my mouth down or right. you need to annotate and annotate everything in the text because I think there's value in not writing and just listening right. for the whole time. Yeah. But as, as a teacher, who's trying to help students get to the next level yep. and actually get to that listening part. Like you have to at least show me, I need some evidence or some proof yes. that you're, you're there with me. Exactly. Um, which exactly. has been definitely tough over zoom, but yep. there are other ways of doing that. As yep. you said. Yep. Um, so what, what do you teach here at Gilman? Uh, right now I'm teaching three sections of the 10th grade making of modern Europe class. I think this is my fifth year teaching that class. I think. Uh, and then a senior elective, which is now U.S. since 1960. For a long time, it's been U.S. since 1945. And I'm not sure when that course debuted. I actually took it when I was a senior. And then um, Jerry Thornberry taught it for a long time. Uh, and, and now it's U.S. This is the first year it's U.S. since 1960. Why, why, the cha why did we change? I felt like I was just sort of giving lip service to 45 to 60. The kids were least interested in that. They had were more likely to have covered that in their U.S. history classes. I was just sort of like, let's get through the 50s. I thought the kids felt like, and I felt like it got a little more interesting once we got to the Kennedys. Um, and, and, and I also was frustrated, you know, it's like sort of scrambling to get to the 2000s. And that should be the fun part of the class, I think, for the kids um, who were alive for some of what we're talking about. Certainly their, their parents were alive for, for the 2000s. I think they're more interested in that. So this year, actually, I started the class at 2000. We got up to 2016 so that we could be 
um, sort of current when the election was taking place in November. Hmm. Uh, and now we're, we're, we've moved back. So now I'm back in like 1968. Oh, right wow. Now. So yeah. you, you, you reverse the structure. I sort of reverse the structure a little bit. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, what do you typically start with? I guess... I guess in '45, when you when you taught that, what did what did you start with? Started with the, the start of the Cold War. Uh, um, yeah, like a brief introduction, re- reminders of what World War II was about, and then the causes of the Cold War. Um, and this year, again, reversing it, we started with the 2000 election, um, the very controversial Bush Gore election, um, and then had them do some research on 9/11. Um, Are they? Um... For the most part, are they doing like kind of independent research on that, or is that uh, more discussion? Or how is that on on nine eleven itself? Yeah, yeah. Um, they choose one question that night. I I sort of intentionally phrase it that way, in that nine eleven is still recent. I mean, even though my students now weren't alive for it, this might be the first year. Maybe I think that's right. But seniors weren't. I mean, in the last I don't know five years, they basically had no memory of it. Right. right? Um, I don't, I don't even want to know how old you were, uh, uh, on 2001. I was, I mean, I, I do have faint memories of like, faint. That, it was just very, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to do the math. You were a toddler, how old were you? first grade, maybe yeah, okay. or preschool. Yeah. 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 So very faint memories. Um, but anyway, I, so I say we still don't really know the answers. It's still, even if there were two decades removed, um, to what 9-11 meant, but we know a lot of questions it raised. So investigate one question that 9-11 raised um, and then try to come to some sort of answer. Um, and so that's that's how I approach it. And then, yeah, so th- they're doing some research on a question like, I'm um, trying to think of some of the topics. Um, um, w- why did it take so long to find bin Laden or um, how did this affect our Middle East policy in Iraq or Afghanistan or um, how did it affect how we interrogate prisoners or, or, or something like that? Uh, investigate that question and then um, do, did some research on that. And then they um, presented it to the class and, and wrote a short paper, too. How, um, how are those presentations? I haven't done too much. I've done a little bit of that. But how, how are those going yeah. through the virtual? Because this class is totally virtual, right? That, or, um, it's, it, it's, or is it's, that hybrid? it's hybrid. Yeah, it's hybrid. Okay. Um, this year, I don't have any any girls enrolled. I, I'm not exactly sure why that is, if part of that is due to COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always taught usually five, six, seven Bryn Mawr students along, but but not this year. But anyway, it, it's hybrid. Um, and I mean, again, I, I have such a strong group of seniors. I think that class typically, it's a full year history elective. It's an honors elective. So it typically attracts kids that are, really interested in strong history students. So at any rate, and there, so the presentations were great. Um, they were really attentive to each other. Um, the kids in class, um, were on the zoom and shared their screen. The kids on zoom shared their screen, you know? And, Mm -hmm. um, so I, I thought, I thought they did a great job with them. One question that, that I've thought a little bit about is, um, when I was observing classes in my first and really my second year too, I was doing as part of the master's program, here at Gilman, a, a like a year long research question, yep. and my question was all about since I was teaching junior English with with boys and girls in the same room, yep. I I had, had so much trouble in that first yep. and second year yep. with just making it a, a lively and discussion oriented yep. atmosphere as an English class should be yep. with 
girls and guys in the same room for the first time. Yeah. It, was, it was awkward. My first year, for sure. It's super awkward. It's hard to get people to speak up. Part of that was because of my inexperience as a teacher. But when I observed your classes, it was, I mean, it was so visibly comfortable. Yeah. Um, and, and I've had, I actually had some conversations with some of your students that year about what, what are some things that Mr. Baum does in his classroom to make this so comfortable? Um, and I've noticed a few things, but what, what do you think as a teacher of typically a, a, a coordinate class like that, what do you think it is that you do to provide that type of atmosphere? Well, I appreciate you saying that. I'm flattered that you said that. Um, coordination's hard. Um, and we've talked a lot about that this year as a department because we're not coordinating the 11th grade class and, and how different that's been. I'm a big fan of coordination overall. Um, but I do think some teachers, um, I, I think I think our department's very um, supportive of coordination, but have breathed a little bit of a sigh of relief of sort of not having to, to deal with the issues that you talked about. I think, first of all, um, the class that you observed was a senior class. That's different because mm-hmm. they've had coordination the year before. Um, so many of the Bryn Mawr students have been on, they should, actually all should have been on the Gilman campus, either for English or history. So I think it's sort of an apples to oranges comparison. Um, and seniors are just a year older and, and a little bit more mature. I, I And I've taught the junior class, and some of my best experiences as a teacher, I feel like where the class has gelled the most, have been in those junior coordinated classes, and some of my worst, where I feel like the class just can't get people to talk or the boys are only talking, the girls aren't talking, or in those, those junior, um, those junior coordinated classes. So it's tough. Um, but to try to get to the question, I, I find myself more at the beginning of the year being very intentional about it. Um, you know, welcoming the girls, even explicitly saying, you know, I hope you don't think of this as a road game. This is every bit of much of your classroom as it is in any of the boys classrooms. Um, and then trying to doing my best to um, sort of know what they're up to outside of class. I think that's a hard part um, of coordination too. You know the boys who are in the play, or you saw them on the basketball court or whatever. I would try to make sure I at least knew what the girls were up to, and if I could support them in, in some way and go to their games or their plays or, or whatever, and just sort of something to break through and, and talk about, right? Even those like five minutes before class, that sort of banter, you sort of prime them that this is a space where they can feel comfortable and, and, and where they can talk. Um, and also, um, I mean, it sounds like almost lower school stuff, but it e- even requires seating mm-hmm. where, you know, I've told them it's not going to be like a middle school mixer where the boys are on one side and the girls are, are on another side. Yeah. 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 I tried so much of those, yeah. um, experimenting like that in my second year, because the first year I had a great class. I awesome students who I feel like I'll, I'll at least keep in touch with in yep. the future, yep. but it was very stale in there. And I, th- that was one thing that I really wanted to work on going forward is like, how do I make this more comfortable? It's English class. You're supposed right. to right. feel confident in what you say, or at least know that there's no right or wrong answer. Did you feel like the girls were more hesitant to speak up or did you just have a quiet group of boys? I felt like it was only a few students uh-huh. who wanted to speak up. Uh-huh. And um, I think both boys and girls were very strong in that class and they had a lot to say. And I would grade their papers and be like, wow, you're really thinking deeply about this. Why didn't you say anything? Right. Class? Yes, exactly. It's because exactly. I could have done. I think it was my first year. So it was like I was kind of nervous up there, too, yeah, you know. Maybe. 
Um, maybe, yeah. Or it was the group. It, it was just, maybe yeah. a mix of both. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And that's another sort of part of, again, going back to using strategies that we probably should use anyway, but we're using now more uh, that we're doing some distance learning. Is There are other ways other than using your voice to contribute, right? Like discussion boards or Flipgrids or whatever, is putting in the chat, right? Mm-hmm. I've actually tried to use the chat function a fair amount on Zoom. Um, and so one is that gets the students quote unquote voice out there, but also once they've put it out there, you can then call on them. You know that they have something good to say. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and on the virtual end of things this year, I've just started kind of cold calling on some, yep. some yep. guys because yep. that, yep. the first couple months, and even I still do this, I go on there like, how's everyone doing? It's like, no one's going to respond. To yes, that, exactly. You know? exactly. You, you have to say, Hey, yep. Chris, what's going on? Yes. What'd you watch last night on right. Netflix? Yes. How are things? Right. Yep. Um, yep. so there, there are different skills and ways to go about the virtual situation yep. too. Yep. Um, so it's, yeah. it's tough, but it's, yeah. it's fun experimenting with that. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the icebreakers and I, um, even, even something like what you watch, you know, or what, you, you know, what are you watching these days? Um, again, it just sort of gets people like you can press unmute and you can, you can contribute. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, so Matt, I'm interested in your time at, as a student at Gilman and maybe what about Gilman did you love so much or some memories that you had that were so fun that made you want to come back here? Yeah. I, I was here for 12 years, 12 year man, as they say, uh, which was the most that they didn't have a kindergarten or pre-K. So I guess my first year was 1981. I think the fall of 81, it just, I graduated in 93. Um, I mean, most of my, well, I'll say that most of my memories are, are um, upper school just because that was, you know, the time when, when you're making your most formative memories, I guess. Um, in terms of why I wanted to come back, I mean, I, I'll credit or, or blame so many of the great teachers that I had um, and who I really, um, I, mean, I, I don't know if idolized is the right word, but um, respected maybe is, is, is the better word. Um, but teachers and coaches like uh, Tim Holly, Dan Christian, Jerry Thornberry. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever come across Doc Thornberry, but long time. Seen him in the yeah. library a few times. Okay, gotcha. Yep. History Had some conversations here. with him. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, people that, first of all, seemed to really like what they were doing. You know, the idea that you could sort of spend your career engaged in these ideas and reading these cool books. Um and talking about them with students um, and, um, and and coaching, um, you know, they just made it seem like it was, uh, first of all, fun and also just intellectually stimulating. Um, so I'd say that's more than anything probably why I, I uh, pursued teaching. And then, and, and I was teaching elsewhere um, you know, uh, um, before I came to Gilman and then wanted to move back to Baltimore. And, and um, luckily there was a position here. Was your interest in history something that was intrinsic from a certain point, or were there influences who led you down that? Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, I mean, certainly Jerry Thornberry, I would give him the most credit. I mean, it, his classes um, just, I think, awakened that. My dad was, um, who, my dad was not a historian or history teacher. He worked in finance, but um, he was interested in history too. So we had a lot of sort of dinner table conversations and. That was a topic that he was always interested in. Um, and then um, Dr. Thornberry's classes, and I took his, one of his electives when I was a junior and then another when I was a senior, um, I think probably awakened that in me. And then 
majored in history in college. What was what was Thornberry like as a teacher? Oh man! So if you've had some conversations with him, you know one of the things because I know as a colleague of his, he's exactly the same <laughs> um, in the classroom and out, which is to say, um, he's incredibly passionate. He's funny. Um, he was the most challenging teacher I ever had. I, I gave a um, tribute to him at an assembly um, before he retired, and I told everybody he, uh, as I said, dropped the double nickels on me my first paper assignment. He gave me a 55 on my first, really? my first assignment. I got, I got a lot better from there, just, just, to, just to be good. But I didn't know how to sort of do history like that, reading these big books and sort of dealing with these big ideas. Um, but he, he was challenging. I mean, and then I took over his American government class and I was asking my students to do like half of what he would ask them. I mean, he just had a way of demanding, and, and students loved him, but of demanding them reading and writing a ton. Um, and was just so engaging in, in class too. Isn't it funny? I feel like my family has talked about this with just my sisters and I, uh, in terms of our teachers growing up, were often the most strict teachers were the best teachers. Yes. Or the most, like... He probably didn't. He probably did a pretty good job on that paper, but he gave you a fifty-five. Yeah, I'm not sure about that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he yeah. saw something yes. in you that yes. I mean, now you're a history teacher right. here. So right, right, um, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And I think about that, and I mean, <laughs> you can you can only be who you are, right? I mean, and it's probably not a good idea to just sort of only imitate the people that you that you venerate. But um, yeah, no question. I think the teachers that you probably liked the most or respected the most are the ones that demanded the most out of you. Same with, same with coaches, right? Yeah. 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 And you played a number of sports here at Gilman too. Basketball is your main sport. Basketball and baseball. Um, I, I was on the team. I'm not sure that's the same as playing, um, <laughs> especially once I got to varsity. Um, you can ask coach Holly and coach Jordan about that. Um, but yeah, I played basketball and baseball and love sports. That was a big part. Certainly when I think back to my fondest memories at Gilman, um, a lot of them are fresh soft JV and varsity basketball, no doubt. Awesome. Um, and then, so before you came back to teach at Gilman, you were up in Providence teaching. Um, yep. What, after you graduated from Brown with history degree, yep. right? Did you immediately want to get into teaching yep. or was there yep. a decision at that point in your life or did yep. you do something else for a little bit or how did that play out? Yeah, I'll, I'll take you through my resume very, try to do it briefly. But yeah, I did. I mean, I actually went into college thinking I wanted to be a teacher. And again, really? I, you know, credit, credit my, my teachers at Gilman. Um, and so I, I majored in history, but took some education classes. And then I taught for two years at a great private school in Montgomery, Alabama, and then moved away from it for a few years. I worked on a political campaign for a year. I worked in finance in Boston for three years and was thinking pretty hard about staying in that area or law school or business school, um, you know, literally had taken an LSAT class um, and then decided to go back and get a master's in history and, and say I was going to go back to teaching. Um, so then went back to teaching uh, in Providence, um, back to Providence, um, got my master's at Brown and, and then um, stayed in Providence for another eight years before I came back to Baltimore. And the school you taught at in Providence, I was looking at some pictures of it. it looks, yeah. looks like an amazing school. Yeah. Wheeler School. Wheeler School. Yeah. Good research. I'm impressed. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, I need to know yeah, come who I'm talking to. Yep. The Wheeler School, uh, which is a great school, sort of almost in the middle of the Brown campus, co-ed, um, nursery through 12, private school. What, yeah. what did you teach there? What did I teach there? Yeah. Uh, upper school history as well. Um, 
mostly, uh, yeah, U.S. history and then a um, con contemporary world issues senior elective class. So you've taught a number of courses in the history yeah. department. Is there is there is there one that's your favorite? Is the four, U.S. history since forty five your favorite course or probably the course that like gets me most excited? You know, when I'm one way maybe to think about it, it's like when I'm reading on my own, like that's the topic I would want to read about most and sort of think about that class the most outside of class. Um, I've always been U.S. history focused, and then I sort of forced myself to teach the Euro class five years ago. I've learned a ton in those five years. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say, and even as a student, the sort of U.S., you know, since World War II has probably been my, my favorite topic. The, um, the, the Euro Civ or the making of modern Europe is one that I don't know too much about. I haven't observed that class. Yeah. What, what do you guys go through in that course? It's a pretty standard traditional European history. I mean, now start at the Renaissance and sort of get as far as you can get, which is usually through the fall of, of the Berlin Wall or the end of the Cold War is where I end the class in the, in the early 90s. Um, yeah, so right now... Um, kids are just taking their their midterms, talking about, um, and then we'll come to class tomorrow. Actually, talking about Darwinism and Marxism, and um, the thing I, I like about that class that maybe surprised me a little bit the first time I taught it is it's it's not so heavy on like who was the king of this year or whatever. It's more of a history of ideas class, and so it gets into a lot of philosophy. So we can have some pretty pretty good discussions in that class. Less regurgitation, more discussion. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. The best. It's well, that, that, those are the types of classes, at least I try to structure my English class like that because I feel like I'm learning just as much alongside of Absolutely. everyone than just, you know, memorize this, these chapters. Exactly. Exactly. And there's some of that, like you have to know some facts, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, more, more about the history of ideas. Cool. Yeah. Um, so when you're now U.S. history since 1960 course, is there a decade or is there a unit that you get really excited about every year to teach yeah, and there, is there one that's that you kind of dread teaching that you want to change around to i don't know if i'd say there's one i dread teaching i mean i've always been really interested in the 60s um and vietnam and civil rights especially so it, it and that's maybe why i changed the class to since 60 because i would sort of get bogged down there and then sort of have to scramble to, to cover the rest so to me, that's still really exciting. I, I wonder if part of that is because that when I was studying it, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was at Gilman, it felt like, you know, recent history that my parents lived through and, and, and remembered. Um, so I'd say still for me, that's probably um, the most fun. I think, again, the students probably perk up most once we get to the 90s and beyond, and, and especially in the 2000s. Um, and it is fun. And and different to teach history that I not only lived through, but, but lived through as an adult and, and really remember, like the, the Bush years, um, for example. And so we, you know, again, I started the class in 2000, so spent a fair amount on, on the Bush era uh, and just re remember living through that and, and what I was thinking at the time. Um, so I'd say that, that that's been an enjoyable um, part for me to teach too. I think this, the 60s, for me at least, I, I would be interested in learning so the way i kind of rationalize that is like when i'm on netflix and i'm just searching around yeah. and i hate this about netflix and yeah. hbo is the browsing yes because i feel like i spend more time browsing than actually watching yes. anything the paralysis of like what should i actually click on yes too yeah, much because there's too so much, much out yeah. there yeah but recently i was 
like, all right, I need to choose something. But I, I was watching some of the RFK yeah. and learning a little bit about him. And he's an interesting figure of the 60s. And mm-hmm. I've always been interested in JFK's yep. presidency. Yep. So was that uh, what's, what's that documentary? It was like um, Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy for president or something? Yeah, like, yeah exactly. I, you know, I haven't I haven't watched it. It's, it's it's in my in my queue or on my list or whatever, that, whatever they say. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that, that's interesting that you would be be drawn to that. Yeah, he's certainly a fascinating figure. Because I feel like I I don't know, in school, I didn't learn much about him because he was just kicking off his political career almost before he, he was, was almost killed, in, right? in the shadows, yes. but not really with yeah. Kennedy. He was right on his side making those decisions as, as attorney general right you got it you he got was it. always there exactly um, I, I feel like most it, I, I could be wrong about that but ask our students but i feel like most students actually don't even really realize that john kennedy had a brother who was also killed you know that uh, kennedy john kennedy's killed in 63 and then his brother killed in 68 um i think that's sort of news to to most of and most so much i mean so much misfortune to the kennedy oh family God. just we, when we talk a little bit about that just just awful and tragic, yeah. I mean, including just this past, I had this weird, just at the beginning of quarantine, I was watching the movie um, Chappaquiddick, which is about Ted Kennedy, um, who's an, another brother, longtime senator, um, and then watched the, I thought, really good Netflix, Netflix had it, a movie called Chappaquiddick, which is about this tragic car accident that he was involved in. Um, and just at the, just as I was watching that movie, there was an incident, I'm trying to remember who it was, it was, Bobby Kennedy's granddaughter and great grandson mm-hmm. in Maryland had an accident where they're sort of trying to fetch a ball, and they both died in the just just this past March or April. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so anyway, um, just a ton of tragedy in their in their family life. Do you um, does your class debate or talk about the assassination of JFK and what happened there? Again, that's a rabbit hole. We can go down so far and spend so much time there. We there's a um, a really good documentary as part of the the 60s documentary that um, I think you might have observed me um, showing some of that same series. That's on uh, Netflix, right? I was trying to find I think that. it's on Netflix now. Yeah. I think CNN originally did it and now it's on Netflix. Because they have 60s and they have 70s, 80s, 80s 90s, 2000s. Yeah, they have everything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I could, we could like spend the, my whole class just watching those, you know? Yeah. Um, and so we, we watch a lot of that. It's like a 90-minute documentary. We probably watch half of it. Um, so we go through that a little bit. And, and the thesis of that documentary, which I think I am sympathetic to, says that the reason there's so many conspiracy theories is because we don't want to believe that some random dude could have could affect history that much. You know, it just doesn't seem it, it's it's asymmetrical. It, it doesn't make sense that just one Lee Harvey Oswald could um, affect history. So we have to create all these conspiracy theories to make it sort of more almost more settling to us. Um, that that it has to be a larger conspiracy. Hmm. So I'm not a big conspiracy guy myself, um, and I think the documentary sort of takes that stance too. Do you have a, a set opinion or thought on that assassination, or are you kind of just interested in both sides? Yeah, I mean, I I think I, I think he was he was alone. Maybe not, maybe not both sides, yeah. but all of the different sides yeah, to that I th- conversation. I, I think he was the lone assassin, and again, I think it's it's. We just don't like to think of history that can um, hinge on one guy. Hmm. Um, so that's that's where I sort of come out on that. But I do think it's really interesting to think about why there's so many conspiracy theories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the reasons that I I mean not one of the reasons, but one of the motivations for starting the podcast is I've always loved watching Joe Rogan and yeah. I love podcasts yeah. in the first place. But 
Rogan has a few episodes where he goes deep into the assassination of JFK, and he is totally. That's one thing he takes a hard stance on is like G- Lee Harvey or Lee Harvey Oswald did not act. Alone. Oh, really? Like, oh, I'm interesting. A, I'm a gun guy, and there's no way that bullet could have. Uh, you know, interesting. Um, so I I just find the conversation yeah. interesting yep. and the facts yep. and yep. the the discussion about yep. it and how you can have yep. such a hard conviction on yep. any side yep. about Absolutely. one single thing that happened. Absolutely, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I've actually been to the what's called the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas, which is where um, Oswald was when he fired the shot, the sixth floor of the book depository building. And you can stand almost right next to, there's like, you can see where he stood. And then there's an X on the street of where the motorcade was when Kennedy was hit. And it it was, it's not an easy shot. Um, It's a ridiculous shot. Yeah, it's a ridiculous shot. Um, And he fired a few times. Um, That was a fascinating museum. Oh, that's interesting. You've mentioned the Joe Rogan podcast. I know that's supposed to be a really good one. I've actually never listened to it. I'm a big podcast guy myself, but um, but I'll, yeah, I'll try to check those out. Yeah, I mean, I just like Rogan because he's got such an open mind. Yeah. He whoever he has on his podcast, he's not not going to get in an argument with you on set about something. Right. He's just interested in what you think mm-hmm. about it, mm-hmm. um, and he's he's just a good listener. Yep. I think, which yep. is a great quality about him. Absolutely. Um, He's done really well with his podcast yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, what? Um, so, question that I've thought a lot about, and actually one of the icebreakers that I do for my classes, hard question. But if you're looking at American history, or even for you as a history teacher, history in general, are there certain individuals or people that if you were a podcast host, <laughs> and you could have on your podcast yeah. to talk to? Is there anyone that sticks out to you yeah, that's that you'd great, like to talk to and pick their brain? That's a, that's a great question. I mean, I'm tempted to sort of go right right down to the sports, um, <laughs> you know. Um, but, um, yeah, who, who, would I, who would I have on? I mean, I don't want to say the obvious. Like, I want to talk to Abraham Lincoln. But um, it would be pretty fascinating to talk to uh, a founding father. I mean, again, maybe the obvious choice. But how about Hamilton and have him? reflect on the on the musical you mm-hmm. can have have him listen to, uh, to the opening number a great answer of hamilton uh and just watch his jaw drop to the ground of seeing lin-manuel I, miranda rap i haven't to, seen to it yet. his life story you haven't it's disney plus right i need to watch that yep okay. yep obviously no one's watching it on stage right now um it'll come back to the stage i'm sure yeah disney plus do you have disney plus no but it's, i would get it to watch it's, it's worth a month subscription to to watch it yeah okay uh, yeah, so maybe I maybe I choose him um, and, and start from start from there. Yeah. Okay, that's a great answer. Yeah, I was actually just watching uh, a little documentary about Hamilton, and then I'm also I got HBO is the cor- the situation right now is just forcing me to, to start buying these right paid yes. subscription channels. Yep. It's definitely not good for the bank account, but right. I got HBO. I'm watching the John Adams. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I know that was a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, that was that was like, I actually remember my daughter was born. So it was probably 2008, 2009 when that came out. Because I remember giving her bottles while I was um, watching that on my on my TiVo. Yeah. And that was one maybe one of the first HBO shows with, uh, what's his name? Dan Ciamatti, maybe? or Paul Giamatti. Paul, Paul yeah. Giamatti. He played yeah. John Adams. Yeah. He's great. He's great. I show uh, um, one episode of that in my when I when I used to teach U.S. history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but John Adams would be an interesting no figure. question. Thomas Jefferson for no, sure. No question. Yeah, I mean Jefferson to get to all the contradictions, um, 
you know, we talk about when I, again, when I used to teach U.S. history, that the same guy that wrote All Men Are Created Equal also owned slaves, right? Mm -hmm. And owned a lot of slaves. Um, yeah, that'd be, that'd be pretty fascinating. Sarah Lloyd was on the podcast a little while ago, and I was telling her I recently went to Monticello for the first time to see it. Yeah, yeah. And I think in, in the experience of seeing his house and where he lived and like the interior's house and his library, you really get the sense of how much of a great man he was yes. as contradictory as, yes. you know, his life was yes. obviously, but he was just an amazing person. Yes. And, and truly brilliant. I mean, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Um, architecture and travels and politics yep. and law and everything. Yep. No, no question. So when were you in Monticello? Um, right after Thanksgiving, I think I stopped okay. there. Oh, gotcha. Oh, yeah, so, so really recent. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, I'd gone as a kid and then took our family two summers ago. Um, and yeah, it's fascinating and get a, get a sense um, of just how much he loved his home too. Mm -hmm. Um, and how much uh, love and care he put into Monticello itself. Yeah, it's beautiful. And yep. um, yeah, I mean, I, I think his persona comes into full picture when you're actually there looking yep. at it. Yep, yep. Maybe have him and Hamilton together since they were such bitter enemies um, uh, during their lifetime. Yeah. How about from uh, your course, 1960s onward, yep. is there anyone who sticks out you'd like to pick their brain? I mean, I don't know if it's just because we were talking about him, but Bobby Kennedy would certainly be be pretty fascinating. I mean, I, and again, maybe it's just because we're right there um, talking about Vietnam, but, but John Kennedy too. I mean, one of the great what-if questions is what he would have done had he lived as far as Vietnam is concerned and whether the Vietnam War would have happened. And so to try to actually get his get his thoughts on that. We, we were just talking about that last class. And to my mind, and again, I, I sort of said this before, but I th the class, my class sort of turns on Vietnam. I mean, so much of what comes next over the next decades um, is, as result, as it is a result of the Vietnam War. And so to get Kennedy's take on, on mm -hmm. that would certainly be, be pretty fascinating to say the least. What, what are some things that you look at when you study Vietnam? Is there anything that for people who are interested in digging deeper into that subject can look at that you yeah. might teach in your class? Yeah, well, th there was a recent um, Ken Burns documentary, um, which came out two, three years ago, maybe. Um, and we watched some of that. Um, and then I, the way I structure the unit is I, I assign them each a, a turning point in the war. Um, so in groups. So I think there are um, four turning points that I have between 1961 and 1968. And then they have to assess what were the options available to either Kennedy or Johnson. Um, and why did they, why did Kennedy and Johnson go the route that, that they went in? So I, I sort of see, see the war in these sort of turning points. Um, and almost that the war happened accidentally. And that it was just sort of a series of, to use the phrase that politicians always use, of sort of kicking the can down the road. Mm -hmm. And then before you know it, they're, you know, half a million troops uh in vietnam and um you know fifty thousand americans dead um mm -hmm. so that, that that's how i structure that unit one of the uh books that i'm teaching for this short fiction course in the spring is th the things they carry yeah and those yeah. short stories and pictures yeah. that really create images yeah. about that that war and the yeah you know, the lives lost and the devastation of war yep 
Uh, it's an amazing one. Yeah, Tim O'Brien is is a big part of that Ken Burns documentary. Actually, he's he's interviewed a, a number of times. I'm glad you're teaching that. I don't think that book is in our curriculum anymore. Maybe mm-hmm. I know. I think it's still summer reading for Bryn Mawr students. So when I've taught Bryn Mawr students, they've often referred to it. That's a great still. I think that still holds up. It's been a few years since I've read it, but just great stories. Mm-hmm. And I think gets to the absurdity of the war. We we start off the unit talking about how Vietnam was an absurd war. It didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. as opposed to, say, World War II. Um, and I think those stories really show that. Going back to your thought on uh, Kennedy's legacy and what he might have left behind if he lived, yeah. uh, would, would his... I guess he was in his second term, right? That was He, he, he was just running for a second term. So okay. he's, he's elected in 60 and then killed in 63. Yeah. Okay. Uh, would, he, would his rest of his presidency have looked similar to Johnson's, do you think? Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I I, I would guess not. They were such different personalities, first yeah. of all. Had some of the same values. Of all the people that we teach, uh, that I teach in that class, LBJ maybe is the most complicated. Um, and so much really good happens in his term, and then it's all overshadowed by, by Vietnam. Um, so I don't know, that's a fascinating question. Mm-hmm. And, and if there if the Vietnam War didn't happen, what would what would the rest of Kennedy's term have looked like? Is just fascinating. On the other hand, LBJ was ended up, and he, it took him maybe a little bit to get there. Super committed to civil rights, mm-hmm. and maybe in a way that the Kennedys weren't talking about. Dr. Thornberry. Dr. Thornberry was never a fan of the Kennedys. Really? And yeah, and I remember that from t- taking his class, and have talked about it with him since. Uh, probably first and foremost because. Um, because of, of their lack of commitment to civil rights. Hmm. It, was, it, was, it, was, it was tepid, maybe more tepid than people realize. Yeah. And it's surprising how LBJ was... Did he did he waver in his commitment to civil rights, I wonder? Yeah, I don't know. And, and, we, and we talk about this a lot in class, about how much of it was because he was really committed to civil rights or how much of it was because he sort of wanted to... Uh, increase his own power and stature and be the guy yeah. that sort of brought these laws into place. But mm-hmm. whatever reason, it almost doesn't matter. These monumental yep. civil rights laws 64. were passed. Yeah, in 64 and 65, the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act. Um, yeah, so it sort of depends. I mean, in many ways, he was really racist. Yeah, um, I mean, he's from the South, from right? The, from yeah. Texas, yep. Growing up in Texas in the early 20th century. Certainly used language and ideas that we would find abhorrent today. Yeah. And yet at the same time, he's he's responsible in many ways for for some of the most important pieces of legislation. A movie that I love uh, about his campaign all the way. I think yeah. that's on HBO yes. too. Yes, man, you, you watch it all. I know. Oh, with, I'm really not a big TV watcher, but I. Well, you watch all the good stuff. Yeah, with um, Brian Cranston. He is amazing. He's I amazing. Love that guy. He's amazing. We I didn't do it this year, but last year we actually watched. Uh, a fair amount of that. Um, that's a great sort of psychological portrait of him because he he gets his persona to the T. Exactly. If, if I like, if I understand what LBJ was like, he was just so persuasive. He would like tower over people. And Johnson look, treatment. You got it. Johnson treatment. Yeah, that's what's yeah. Yep, you got it. Yeah, Brian Cranston was brilliant in that, and it, that was a play first. I actually saw the play, not with him. It, Brian Cranston was in the play originally. I saw it with someone else, but um, and then saw the HBO movie. Yeah, really good. Yeah, so that's a recommendation for sure. Definitely, no question. And I, I'd no love question. to get to your book recommendation too that yeah. you brought in today. Yeah. So what? So what yeah, are you, you reading? You asked me to bring in a book, and I just I, I'm actually not someone that usually sort of writes down what I read, but I was having such a good streak during quarantine that I started to document what I read, 
This was one of the first, my first quarantine reads. It's called The Unwinding by George Packer. Um, and I think it's probably the, my favorite quarantine read, the favorite mm. book I've read since, um, since March. Um, and George Packer, who's a contemporary writer, sort of historian, has written for The New Yorker a bunch, I think now with The Atlantic, sort of takes on U.S. history in the Obama years up to, um, up to Trump, but Trump is never mentioned in the book, and it's about the experiences of everyday people and especially how they responded to the 2008 um, market crash. Um, and, and interspersed in there are sort of two-page portraits of some celebrities like Oprah Winfrey or some politicians like, um, like Elizabeth Warren. Mm. Um, so it's sort of like an on-the-ground history of, you know, 2008 to 2015. Um, and um, it, it, was, it was published before, before um, Trump was elected, but a lot of people, once Trump was elected in 16, said this, was, this is a book that sort of explains that election more than, more than anything. Like how Trump came to power and how he... In a way that doesn't even mention Trump, but just sort of why people would think that politicians don't have their interests at heart. Mm. Why someone who has the messages that Trump had of build the wall and blame China or whatever would, would find that appealing. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of how so many ordinary Americans um, were suffering. Um, and 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 I think more than anything traces the breakdown of institutions, whether it's unions or the media or whatever. Um, and Trump's election, maybe more than anything, was sort of about giving the middle finger to institutions, right? Um, and so I think this book does, does a really good job of, of exploring that. And the fact that it's not about Trump per se maybe makes it even more powerful. Right. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. It's, yeah. it's almost... Um... Uh, I forget what we could call that in in art class. I would have to ask Connolly, but like the opposite of the subject, the, sh- the shadow or yes. the yes, uh, they're they're explaining the negatives. There you go. Right. There you go. Absolutely, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are on just the po- the polarization in in t- terms of like why people lost trust have lost trust in yeah. institutions yeah. and have turned to someone like Trump. Right. Um, and just really from a personal experience talking to people, I think social media and media exacerbates everything, but we live in different realities. Like everyone has their convicted idea of what America looks like and what are the flaws and what's wrong with it. But you can have a totally 100% different viewpoint on everything. Um, do you, do you think that like, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on how, this can balance out like the, the polarization or is it just, can it get worse? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And I, sometimes I'm tempted at maybe as a history teacher to say like, there was never this sort of golden era. You know, I think sometimes people falsely think that like there was a time when all Americans got along or, you know, all politicians used there to. There are always two sides. It's, exactly. Or, or many sides. And um, our country has been very divided before. I mean, probably most, especially during the civil war. Um, so, Things are really bad now. It's not that they were ever great in terms of pol- polarization, um, but I do think that distrust in institutions is a major story um, that that has happened. And I bring it back to to my class, but maybe that maybe that started sort of simplistic to say it started during Vietnam and Watergate um, in mm. the 60s and 70s, and we've just sort of been eroding at the institutions um, since then. 
Do you, um, in your classes, do you have conversations or debates? And I'm sure you do about like current events. Do you, or do you focus more on the historical, yeah. uh, aspects of everything leading up to now? Yeah. Uh, I know in my English classes, like after the vice presidential debate, for instance, uh, I like brought that into the class the next day. And I'm not sure if that's, um, now a good practice or not, but it feels definitely. so relevant definitely. that you have to almost. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. And so I, I try to, and it, my 10th graders this year, I mean, that was, it was a stretch, but I tried to connect the elections that happened obviously this fall um, with the class. And I actually sort of took a couple weeks out and had them watch a documentary about Biden and Trump um, and respond to it. So I'm trying to get them engaged and, and maybe look for themes that are current to us that we're also talking about in the in the class. Um, I think the tricky, well, there are a couple of tricky parts, right, of, of talking about current events. One is that some students are super engaged and they're reading all sorts of stuff. And some students just don't know what's going on at all, which is which is fine. Mm-hmm. I was probably somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. when I was 15. You know, it, that's totally fine. Um, and then also the the problem of it just gets, it can get too emotional. And I, so, mm-hmm. so much of what we've talked about is, faculty, I mean, you know, this is not being scared of those, what are they called? Courageous conversations. I have, have that right. Um, whether it's about current events or race or ethnicity or sexual orientation or whatever, but it's hard. Um, and I, I feel myself sort of walking on eggshells and not wanting to have a blow up in class, you know? Yeah. Um, but try to, try to overcome that feeling. Right. Because it's necessary in terms of your understanding of it. it. and I was having a conversation with one of my friends after last, was that last week, the, the Capitol building? Yeah, January 6th, yeah. I, I just feel like talking about it and having like a two-hour conversation about it and settling, not settling, but expressing our differences in opinion makes me understand my own a little bit more. You got and it. yours, yeah. too. You got it, absolutely. And that I mean, that kind of has to happen in school and has to be officiated almost by a teacher absolutely absolutely that's a great way to put it and of course you have to have an open mind for that to happen and so trying to encourage students to have open mind, which which i think the vast vast majority of our kids do Mm -hmm. um so some of those conversations have been great and also i think especially in the last year i mean there's always historic stuff going on but like 2020 i mean come on like this is this is crazy right like we are true and i've tried to emphasize that to kids like you're living through stuff that will be talked about in history books forever i mean as long as people are talking about u.s history and and world history i mean so it feels like a dereliction of duty as a history teacher not to talk about Mm -hmm. it um and try to try to figure figure it out at least a little bit or at least discuss it absolutely um so Matt, uh, maybe one or two more questions. I just want to get back to your experience at Gilman and teaching here and maybe what, what motivates you to continue pursuing a career in education and maybe what do you love so much about your job at Gilman? Yeah, where to, where to start? Um, I mean, as I said, when I was a student, just looking at my teachers, it seemed like they were having a really fun time reading books and talking about the ideas in the books. And I think that to me is still the, the most fun part of it. Um, and so I've certainly thought about if, do I want to be teaching for the next 10, 20 years or, or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm now at the point, um, unlike you where like maybe I have more years 
teaching behind me than in front of me or, or it's about the midway point right and so you know start thinking it not not that i'd want to change professions but administration or something like that and the answer is the thing i like most about my job is being in the classroom with the kids reading interesting stuff and talking about it with the kids mm -hmm. and so i think that's what motivates me um more than anything um and the coaching too and that's obviously a big part of of the job um I used to coach with a guy named Randy Dace. He was a Gilman parent uh, and then a longtime coach at Towson. I mean, we, we were on the same basketball staff together with uh, Owen Daly. And he said to me once, the thing I love about my job is that I end every day on a court or a field, um, mm -hmm. which is cool, right? That, that was a great way to think about it. Um, but I end every day. Like, that's a, that's a great aspect of the job. Yeah, it's true. You know, that's, that's a good a, point. You, you're on the lacrosse field at the end of every day or, or whatever. I, I get to be on the basketball court uh, or... Back in the fall, when we had we're normal intramural golf. I mean, I'm actually get you know paid yeah. to take kids to, to golf course golf and play some golf. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, that's you know that's a that's a pretty nice perk of the job. Yeah, yeah there are so many perks. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah, I think I had a, I had a moment like that actually with Brian, like first year on the lacrosse field, talking about like the Great Gatsby or a paragraph yes. that we did yes. in class, and it's like doesn't get better you guys you know? they should have recorded that that's like the poster for teacher coach right there right Teacher coach model yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. that's awesome um and then i had another thought for you um oh, that might be it for today okay uh, is there oh is there anything that i didn't didn't ask that maybe i should have asked or that we didn't get to to talk about i'm trying to i don't know that's i think I think you got it. I mean, my time at Gilman, what I teach, what I like about teaching, some good conversations about history. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you're watching or reading right now that you would recommend? Oh, yeah, that's a good Apart question. from the Packer book? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I just finished a book as well. I'm in between books. I literally just yesterday finished a book called Churchill and Orwell, which is a sort of dual biography of, of them. Um, George uh, Orwell? George Orwell. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I also just finished um, over winter break, The Vanishing Half, which is, um, I'd recommend that for, I don't read a lot of fiction, but that's sort of one of my two or three novels that I'll, that I'll read, um, which was which is really good. Watching, I don't know, my wife and I were talking about this. We, we don't have a show right now. I think yeah. partly because of what you said, it's like there's so much choice. We were watching, we were on such a good streak um, at the beginning of quarantine. We just were eating up Netflix and HBO and motoring through our dvr and we've sort of hit a pause in the last couple months i don't know yeah and it's just the browsing is yeah. annoying for me i'd yeah. much rather just my new philosophy on that is like i need a recommendation that someone swears by yes before yes. i even go into it right you right. know Right. Well, the other part of TV shows, like a pretty big commitment, right? I mean, it's like a series. Yeah. yeah. I mean, right. how many You're hours of your in. life? Like, so you got to really commit to it. One thing we're watching as a family, I have a um, fifth grade son and seventh grade daughter is Modern Family, um, which I'd never watched before. Whatever reason that show never made it into my, my watching until the last year. Hmm. And so every night we go through an episode or two uh, and it's really funny and clever and like good family fun. And fun for the four of us to sit on the couch together and watch yeah, it. It's not as serious, you know. It's, it's not so, yes. it's just it's so yes. light. You need yes. that. You need that in these times. Absolutely. Some some comedic relief, no question. Yeah. yeah. My my mom always gives me crap because she's like, Jake, like she asked me for a book recommendation. It's always something kind of kind of semi dark right. or heavy. Right. Like my dad would watch Ozark and she's like, yep. Can we just watch yep. something yep. that's light? Yep. You know? Yep, absolutely. It sounds like your your viewing habits tend to be 
pretty serious too. If you seems like you've seen every history documentary movie too. Yeah. yeah so well, something lights is, is certainly it's a modern story. family in my life. Exactly. And I recommend <laughs> it. I recommend it. Yeah. Uh, and then the last question, is there anyone at Gilman that you would like or be interested in watching on the podcast and would like to hear from who hasn't been on at this point? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Maybe, um, Oh, there's, there's so many, so many teachers that that I'd like to hear. And I've actually really enjoyed. Um, it's, it's actually been a great way listening to some of the episodes to get to know my colleagues better. That's where I wish I had had those conversations when you sit next to them at lunch. Maybe someone from lower school, just because we don't, um, you know, we don't interact as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, um, Max has just adored. My son has adored his um, lower school teachers. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe yeah. someone from lower school. Just because, again, I, I would think I would learn so much from from them. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to hear more about how the little little guys are doing yeah. right now. Yeah, how they can wear those masks. All yes, day. exactly. Um, exactly. Awesome. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on. It's thank been you. A lot of fun. Really talking. appreciate you asking me on. Thank you yep. so much for having me. Have a good one. Thank, thank you. you too.